0: state, legislative, now I think people are much more attuned to it, especially if you're not like politics light, but you're like politics average, right? They understand. I think the SCOTUS decision on Dobbs last year really changed and really pivoted that.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Gina Pack. Gina is the new CEO of Tech for Campaigns, which helps progressive campaigns with digital marketing, especially at a state legislative level. She succeeds Jessica Alter, who I had on the show back in 2018. Gina was a business consultant and Harvard MBA who worked at Theory as Vice President of Consumer Experience and Blueland in charge of their marketing, brand, digital, and such experience efforts before getting into political technology with tech for campaigns It's good to get to know Gina and find out what's happening at her organization. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Gina Pack.
0: This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at Graphicacy.com. That is G R A P H I C A C Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world.
1: Gina, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Hi, I'm Gina Pack. I'm the CEO of Tech for Campaigns, or TFC for short. We're an organization that's looking to be the digital arm of progressives and the party. And we do that in a bunch of different ways, which I'm guessing we'll get into today.
1: Digital arm for progressives is a big aspiration. It's a big (laughs) world, lots of organizations, lots of campaigns. We definitely should explore how you're going about doing that. I first want to kind of understand how you got to this place. Sure. So tell me a little about how you grew up and where and family and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. I don't think if you had asked me when I was, you know, three, four, five, what I wanted to be when I grew up, it would not have had the word politics anywhere near it. I don't know if anything entrepreneurial would have been anywhere near it either. Quite honestly, I'm a second generation immigrant. My parents came to the U.S. for higher education. And I was very fortunate to been born here and really experienced what that meant, and what that looked like. Born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, cultivated a love of college sports, including basketball and football as a result of that. And then after my parents graduated from grad school in Michigan, we sort of went on a tour around the U.S. I went to middle school in a rural part of New York, about an hour outside New York City. I went to high school in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, I went to college in the Bay Area in California. And then my professional life sort of took me to D.C., San Francisco, Philadelphia, Boston, New York, and now Los Angeles. Oh, and D.C. But has given me a great, I think, point of view on the people around the U.S. and what makes the U.S. so unique. And so really appreciated that. And, you know, as part of that, have taken various turns in my career that I never would have really expected. But I think as I've gotten older, have really sort of... Become inspired by everyone else that I look to and admire in terms of how they are able to put purpose and passion and profit and all those things together to do something really meaningful in their work. So whether that's in a for-profit company or in a non-profit organization, trying to tie those things all together has really sort of become my true calling.
1: When someone says they went to school in the Bay Area, (laughs) (laughs) it's like saying you went to school in Cambridge, Mass., or... (laughs) New Haven or something like that. Fair enough. So so, uh, undergraduate at Stanford, right?
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Although there are many other good schools in the Bay Area. There are. What did you study there?
0: Economics and political science.
1: You had said as a young person, maybe not politics, what led you towards economics and political science?
0: My parents are both engineers by training my math is not nearly as sharp as there. So I knew that the hard sciences were probably out in terms of coming from a background that, and a culture generally that was not heavily indexed on the arts or in the humanities, even though I was personally interested in it, probably sort of off the bat gave me a little bit of anxiety to do. So I ended up, you know, doing what I, I do a lot in terms of it averaged out into the middle in terms of social sciences. I think with economics, it was Something that was really tangible and understandable to me, I lived had some kind of lived experience where everyone does in terms of just understanding the concept of supply and demand or things like that. And being also to be able to see the applications in healthcare or in the environmental sciences and really think about incentive structures and behavioral sciences was really interesting. And so I actually looked at econ and psychology for a while. And then I actually ended up pivoting to political science because I really liked both the American studies aspect of it and the international relations aspect of it.
1: Were you interested in campaigns when you were studying that kind of thing?
0: Funny enough, no. I think I was really interested in media. I'd done a decent amount of writing when I was in high school. And so I had thought, do I want to become a journalist for a period of time? And so I think starting to understand the media as it related to political institutions became sort of the launchpad as to how I got more involved. And then I think you know, it's a very classical method of learning. You have, you know, the three different branches of government or you have all these different institutions and then you're just doing a lot of reading on the historical. But I think when I took a class in public policy as part of the major, that's when I sort of really realized that these things are not so conceptual. But I don't know if I was ready to dive in headfirst into something like campaign. It felt very entrepreneurial even then. Then I was like, oh, I think a desk job seems good enough for me.
1: What about partisanship or sort of ideology? Were you like a liberal person, a progressive person? Were you not very political in that sense?
0: I think I was always a social liberal. I think I grew up fiscally neutral, so to speak. And I thought when I was younger, the concept of a social liberal fiscal conservative existed. And then I think as as I became just better versed in the sort of landscape of what's real, that's Those are two circles that don't really intersect. The dynamics of it just don't really make sense. I was maybe not super political. I mean, I was very fortunate that as I graduated, it was around the time of the Obama campaign for the first Obama campaign and the fervor really started to permeate campus being like my senior year. But again, I think being in California, we were very lucky that a lot of the things that people viscerally feel day to day or the sort of threats that they feel day to day were very muted in comparison. That was the time when everyone was still going to work at Facebook and it was still considered the cool new thing because it was a small upstart company, right? Lots of that has changed.
1: A lot of people who major in econ go off to a consulting group like Boston Consulting Group. You put in a couple of years there, maybe two and a half years. Why and what'd you learn?
0: Yeah. So I ended up going to D.C. as part of that, and that's because I'd spent about six months in D.C. in college. That was, again, my first sort of like foray of like understanding the scene and what was happening. Did three months working at uh, OIRA, which is a branch of OMB, an internship, which was really just sort of fascinating. Gotten really interested in the Social Security Administration um, and programs like that in college. And I really just enjoyed the experiences. But I think what I was looking for was sort of that toolkit really a grounded understanding of all the different sort of hard and soft skills you need to be just sort of an effective leader. And so I didn't picture myself being a long-term consultant by any means, but thought BCG was a great place to really learn all the things one needs to learn to be well-rounded. And then as part of that, I also got an immense appreciation for something that I still carry through in my day-to-day now, which is around people development. I think it's one of the best-in-class organizations around developing talent, and it left such an impression on me that I carry a lot of that with me today in terms of how I manage and how I work with teams.
1: When I talk to people who've been in that consulting world or got an MBA like you did, people talk about like hard and soft skills or people development or best-in-class. Those feel like jargon to me (laughs) as I didn't have that training and maybe had to work off of instinct. Do you think that in that world of business and sort of elite training around business that they know how to manage people well? Do you think that the received wisdom from that is is apropos? Did you want to change it for yourself or how do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple different pieces to that. I think one is, they're used to developing a specific kind of talent. I think one of the things I quickly learned once I left BCG is that there's a whole range of talent outside of just the consulting kind of talent. And so how can you take that development sort of toolkit and make it flexible so that you can work with someone who has 500 different experiences that are not just specific to consulting or who is coming just out of college but has a certain set of personality traits that make them incredibly entrepreneurial that needs to be harnessed in a specific way and is not willing to do sort of the step one, step two, step three type of training that you sort of end up going through. And I think it gave me a great appreciation for that. I think it also got me thinking around what aspects of these skills that everyone goes to these jobs for is actually transferable versus not, right? And I think the fact that I, I approach a problem a very specific way, the fact that I try and think about what's the most effective way to tell a story, those are still things I do think are, are things that I carry with me. But yeah, I think you have to get a little creative with whatever lesson you're taking and seeing what the different applications are after that. And I think some people, especially those that end up taking the entrepreneurial path after having gotten that, sort of work on figuring out what's the best way to do that. And then others still transfer it into larger companies and it, and it works just as effectively effectively. But I think in the context of working on a campaign, for example, how to work with field talent and how to work with digital talent, how to work with someone who's a great speaker and can emotionally connect with people, there's all these different kinds of skill sets. And I think being able to hone how you communicate with them is something that they gave me a good starting point, but ultimately took a lot of practice in the field to be able to get better at.
1: What do you think makes a good leader of an organization like yours? What do you think makes a good manager?
0: Oh, such a good question. Well, I think the first thing is that being a leader and being a manager are two different things, <laughs> right? I think to be a good leader, you have to have vision. You have to be able to really inspire and motivate. There's an emotional aspect to being a leader that gets people up in the morning. And when things are really hard or not going your way, that they decide that they still want to stay and work with you and on whatever the, the mission is, right? I think in parallel, being a good manager means you need to be willing to put in the time and put in the work with any individual person on your team. That means being willing to have hard conversations when things aren't going well, one-on-one, both ways, right? Not just for them, but for you. And be willing to learn and develop as part of that. And then giving people an opportunity to make mistakes, giving people an opportunity to stretch and grow. And I think what has been sometimes really challenging is those two things of being a leader and a manager don't always go together. And you have to make those trade-offs. They're not the most fun set of trade-offs by any means, but if you tie it back to what's the betterment for the betterment of the organization, the answer usually comes out as part of that. And it takes a lot of practice, again, to be able to sort of go between both or really get better at one or the other.
1: Can you give me a specific example of that trade-off? I'm not sure if I'm grasping
0: what you mean. So, you know, I think in the course of any given project or program that we want to work on, let's say there's a deadline that comes due, let's say you're presenting it to an external group, you want to give your team member an opportunity to really nail it and get it right. But if they're really struggling and they don't have the right support or they haven't had the training yet and it's too much of a stretch, sometimes you have to come in and either work with them on it, in which case that's where some of the management piece comes in or assess, is this project going to be better served by broadening it out, taking it over, doing whatever else. And that can feel a little demotivating to the team member, but for the betterment of the organization might be worth the time or the trade-off. I think those happen, you know, we try and make them happen as few and far between, but in the reality of just sort of every everything going all the time, right. It's, it's a constant, I think, reevaluation. And I think if you're transparent with your team, you can make a decision that everyone ends up being really understanding and appreciating.
1: You went to, Harvard to get your MBA, do you recommend that as a thing to other people now?
0: Yes and no. I think for me, I went in with a very specific set of reasons as to why I wanted to. I think one, I wanted to get out of consulting and explore what else was out there. I don't think I was yet ready to be an entrepreneur by any means, but I knew there were other experiences that I wasn't necessarily getting. And so that was one. Two, I just wanted to meet more people as it related to that. I'm fairly introverted, so getting an, a forced opportunity to have shared experiences with people is very beneficial for me. Third was it was really a testing ground as, as it relates to the first and second thing to really try and take the time to do something different. A lot of people don't need a forced structure and a very expensive you know, experience to make, make that happen. That's what I felt like I needed. And personally, like for me specifically, I don't regret that at all. I have so many great friends and great experiences as part of that. But again, like I think for those that are a bit more either self-aware or entrepreneurial may not need that experience to to do what I sort of came out with. Everyone's living different lives in different parts of the US. And I think it's a good reminder of that, if nothing else.
1: (laughs) What was theory?
0: So theory was my first foray after business school into doing something that I wanted to do. I'd always been in love with fashion as a a kid. I have sketchbooks filled with designs and things like that. I just loved the concept of it being movable art. And so I had the opportunity to work with Andrew Rosen, who's the founder and former CEO there. And he's sort of like a legend in this segment of the fashion industry. And so I felt incredibly privileged. I got the added bonus of working for an entrepreneur. He has created a segment of the industry that just never existed 20, 30 years ago.
1: I don't know what that is. What did he create?
0: So theory is workwear and it's what we call contemporary, which is sort of like that price point essentially between below luxury designers and a little bit above the mass brands like a Gap or a Uniqlo or a Zara. So it sort of fills the space in between in terms of... The- is workwear
1: like workwear for a white collar job or like yeah, a collar part <laughs> <laughs>
0: so suiting i think a lot of dcers will probably like recognize especially if they're wearing suits every day will recognize it when they're going shopping and it was created in the late 90s just off this concept of comfortable workwear so, like they instituted like integrated stretch into fabrics which before then was just not really an idea And so um, built an incredible business and an incredible sort of brand off of that over several years. That was the first of its kind, sort of not only in that space of like workwear, like suiting, but also in that price point. And so now you look around all the other brands that sort of fit that all came after theory, like it was the first of its kind. But relatedly, Andrew loves meeting founders and he loves investing in founders. And so when he had, you know, Stacey from Alice and Olivia, which is another brand in the space that focuses on loud prints and things like that for women, you know, he was really inspired by her as a founder and said, okay, or Rag & Bone, which is another brand in the space. And so he just has helped and supported a lot of designers and founders and created a, a cadre of American fashion That didn't exist, but also he comes from a manufacturing background. And so he has been one of the sort of like pivotal people in thinking about New York manufacturing as part of that. For me, as someone who just knew nothing, I have toolboxes and I have hard and soft skills. Like I have all of the language, but he he has incredible charm. He has incredible vision. He had all the things that make for an amazing leader and an amazing entrepreneur and so when i sort of like understood what that looked like and going to work for him like i thought i was going to change the world of fashion by fixing these conceptual problems that consultants love to solve then i got in and i was like wow there's this whole other world of how to work with people and how to work with up and coming designers or founders how to make something from an idea into a reality that I found incredibly inspirational. And the fact that I was able to learn from him sort of under his ring as part of that made entrepreneurship feel a lot less scary. And so I was like, oh, a lot of people do it. And I am not really sure how they could be so brave in doing it. But you know, he sort of lowered that bar where, yeah, it still takes a lot of bravery and a lot of guts to decide to do something on your own, but not as scary as you would think it because you have all these great experiences. You have all this people and this support around you that you can figure it out as you go. And I actually immensely enjoyed that in ways that I thought that I never would. And so that's sort of what ended up making my time there so incredibly special.
1: Was there anything in particular that you took from that that you think you apply over at Tech for Campaigns?
0: Andrew always jokes like he he knew that I came from consulting. He's like, you need to learn how to work with people, right? Because I I had worked with a certain kind of audience up until that point. And I take that lesson with me still, right? Not everyone is like me. Not everyone works like me. And that's to my benefit, right? So in the course of working with my team or working with partners, it's always like, how can I be most empathetic to them and where they're coming from, and what their thoughts are to make the overall project, initiative, idea, whatever it is better. And that's something that I think is probably the biggest one. The second one is ideas and vision. Even if you have it, it needs to be repeated. For me, I was working with Andrew all the time that I maybe got sick of hearing his vision over and over again. But honestly, you have to repeat it. 10, 15, 20, 30 times for people to really start understanding it. And without that repeatability, it just sort of goes in one ear, out the other. And you can't really make change happen without that. And that repeatability factor is is hugely impactful, especially when done with sort of that charm and inspiration that he always brings.
1: Why did you leave and what was blue land?
0: Yeah. After my time there and realizing that entrepreneurship was not so scary, I was willing to go out and try something new. Andrew was incredibly supportive of that. And I felt like, okay, I've seen him do it. I don't think I can do it quite like that, but let's see, let's try it. I met the incredible founder CEO there, Sarah, and became part of the founding team at Blue Land, And that was probably my first foray into something purpose-driven and cause-based. I think theory was very much a passion in terms of an industry that I just really thought was interesting and relevant and cool. But Blue Land was my first foray into something cause-based. So Blueland, the mission is around eliminating single-use plastics from everyday products. So what that meant was we were starting with cleaning products, where we had sort of a patented technology of a tablet-based cleaner in a reusable bottle, where you'd get this reusable bottle, fill it with water, drop in a tablet, and you'd get a full bottle of cleaning solution. And then you just reuse the bottle and just buy more tablets. So there was this whole aspect of you know, a more sustainable lifestyle as part of that um, in terms of eliminating single use plastic, but also giving the consumer some other benefits in terms of ease and convenience around storage space, price point, all the things that you sort of need to get someone to change their behavior for the better because you're meeting them where they're at. And so we started there, we did hand soap, which launched about six months before the pandemic and timing wise was very odd and strange. And now there's like a full suite was in the cleaning space and the personal care space. And that was a business that really started as an idea and a formulation on paper and then grew into what it is today and some amazing memories that I don't think I'll ever be able to repeat again in my life. And so truly treasure them. What was next? TFC. <laughs> so, you know, after, after Blue Land, I think I got Because I got such a front seat as to what entrepreneurship looked like, I don't think I've been emotionally prepared for just how hard it can be. You know, I think you go on Instagram and you look and everyone's like, oh, I'm living this amazing founder lifestyle. And for those of you that are listening that are like, wow, that's what it's like. It's not, right? (laughs) The hardest working entrepreneurs are actually not going to be posting on Instagram a ton, right? Because they're busy building their businesses. I think for me, that was such an immense experience, I think had the pandemic... Not happened, things might look very, very different, but I took a step back and said, "Where are other areas where I can make a change or make a shift and and do something cause based?" And so worked with a handful of different brands that were either women founded or mission driven and came upon TFC. Uh, met Jessica Alter, who's our chairwoman and one of the original co-founders. and you know I think she sketched out a, a thesis around why TFC exists that I found so incredibly compelling. I had thought that I was maybe going to work on a campaign going into 2024. So this had been like a hypothesis I wanted to test. I was like, should I, should I try this out now to see if I really want to get involved for 2024? I had more friends now um, that had been involved and they'd all had great experiences, but they also said, you know, if you're looking to take a break, like this is not where you want to do that. Right. And so it's like, huh, are there other ways I can get involved? And, you know, I think the, the idea of, being digitally focused and really helping to improve and evolve the digital ecosystem and environment of democratic politics was an area that I thought was really interesting because you know I'm not a rage tweeter by any means, but I see it and I read it and I definitely can ascribe to it that it was like, this is a way for me to funnel my energy in ways that might be really make a difference. So that's how I landed at TFC. We ran their voter turnout program, which had started in 2020 for them, and then was very fortunate to be asked to lead the organization in 2023, and that's how I got here.
1: You know, I wouldn't have predicted a background in fashion and packaging for household goods and things like that for somebody in the intersection of tech and campaigns, although I've seen quite a number of backgrounds in my days. Why is it a good fit for you?
0: For me, I think I'm starting to get to that point where I've been able to take sort of the hedgehog concept, I think it's called, where it's like you figure out what you're good at, you figure out what you're passionate about, you figure out what's going to pay the bills. And the intersection of those three things is the sweet spot. Blueland was the start of that for me, but TFC has really been the next iteration of it because... The drumbeat, I think, for me around like how my life has been impacted, how other people's lives have been impacted by just the changes that are happening in politics is so much more like visceral now than it was three, four or five years ago.
1: What changes are you referring to?
0: Just even the most maybe salient ones around like abortion or women's right to choose LGBTQ rights, voting rights, stop Asian hate, like a lot of those kinds of things, I think, weren't as prevalent or as topical for me. Like they were definitely things that I cared about and I posted about them, but thereafter it's like, well, what do you do? Right? Your echo chamber is only so big. The impact you can make is only so big. I can volunteer and I can canvas. Like I volunteered as a poll worker in LA County in November 2020 because my grandfather, who became a US citizen, very felt very passionately about it, but there was no way in his age that he was going to be doing that. Right. And so that experience for me, I think, was probably the one that tied a lot of it together in that the talent and the technology, and the desire to want to move us forward, just as a society, of bringing all those things together for the betterment of government and our civic lives. It was just so apparent that there were so many mismatches, so many gaps, and things that were not there. So, for me, like the TFC mission paired with what I thought I could bring to the job just sort of felt like a very natural progression that, like you said, I would never have imagined 10 years ago, he said, would you be involved in the intersection of these things? I'd say, no, why? (laughs) Why would you ever imagine that? But for me personally, it has felt very natural.
1: I did talk to Jessica Alter, one of your founders, I think back in 2018 or thereabouts. Give me a sense of what Tech for Campaigns is now. You referred to a mission. What is the mission and how are you executing?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think it it starts with a really broad idea, right? Wanting to be a go-to when it comes to anything digital within the party.
1: Stop right there. Like, What do you mean by anything digital?
0: So digital marketing is, I think, where we've evolved to. And I would say that it's been a six-year journey to figure out where our product market fit, sort of in that tech entrepreneurship language really is. But digital marketing. So that can mean ads, email, SMS, websites as our core things that we touch. And I think that's really started with working with state legislative races because that's where I think Jessica and the team was very prescient in understanding that that's where everything was happening, right? And so providing services to campaigns to be like running their ads or creating their websites for them or running their email programs, And doing it at low to no cost through our volunteer base that is sourced from best in class talent that is doing this stuff day to day. Right. So you have people that are coming from places like Meta or Google or LinkedIn or agencies that do this kind of work every day. Right. And that's where it started. I think where it has since evolved has also added on this component of taking where can we take the disciplines of digital marketing and apply them to other aspects where we can also see the results of what we're doing. And so voter turnout was a very natural one. Um, it started in 2020 as part of the pandemic, focused on voting by mail, because that data is trackable. It's really something that you can assess over the course of if someone requests it, to gets it, to sends it in. And developing a program that was like fully digitally focused on that, where we're taking all of our strengths that we bring from a marketing perspective and marrying that with voter mobilization. It was a great point in time in which to do it, because there was just a lot of happening in the space, obviously. And so it's a program that I think we saw such great results in that we ran it again in 2022, which is where I got involved.
1: I've talked to a lot of people running digital marketing firms on the progressive democratic side, a lot of them working for statewide races or big congressional races or even smaller ones. There's a lot of those firms What do you think of the current ecosystem around digital marketing for progressive campaigns?
0: I think one of the things that we look at internally is what are we taking from the commercial side and making sure we're bringing in part of that is made easier by the fact that our team is coming from that set of backgrounds as well, that they have that foothold in there. I obviously come from that background as well. And so we take probably a, a different lens to our work when it comes to campaigns than maybe other agencies do. And I think sort of that blending of the commercial side with the political side is what makes our offering sort of unique. To give you an example where that we're like tossing around, or I know people are sort of on the edges of, but is huge and commercial. It's like, let's take AI, right? What's happening with AI? Another would be TikTok. Right? What are these things that we hear about and read about in the New York Times every day? Are we applying them to what we're doing? Because I can guarantee you the other side is too. Those are kinds of ideas where we're always looking to understand, can we test it? Can we test it across campaigns? Can we figure out a mechanism that is low cost but get very clear results to know how to do it again and make it repeatable and scalable for future? That's probably one aspect that we look at it internally. I think as it relates to the ecosystem, the ecosystem is changing and evolving just because the digital marketing space is changing and evolving constantly. It's a question of ultimately too, like where does that sit relative to the other things that you're running your dollars behind? And I think there's been, at least from what I've seen, sort of this shift back post-pandemic, I put that in quotes, for some people it's not over, right? Reverting back to some of the more traditional channels, TV, radio, direct mail, et cetera. And it's not to say that those aren't channels that you should be investing in, but they might be known channels to campaigns and that it's like something easy that they understand what to do, but maybe don't have the same measurability or efficacy in the way that digital might. And for us focusing on younger, more diverse voters, for example, and knowing that that's not really where they are, it sort of gives us a a sort of like a clearer and somewhat narrower point of view of how we should be building and evolving our programs.
1: So- What I think I might have heard was that existing firms in that space aren't maybe bringing everything from the commercial world that they could be. What specifically are you talking about that is there in the commercial world in terms of tools or practices that you think is useful in politics?
0: I think it's less about not bringing in. I think it's at the speed at which it's being brought in influencer content, for example, is probably the most relevant thing where we've all talked about it amongst our groups to be like, oh, influencer is really important. We should be bringing in influencers. But then I think if you look at the space, there's still somewhat limited understanding of its impact, still limited understanding of like what makes for a best-in-class program for how to make it the most impactful for the dollars that you're putting behind it. And I think also this idea of, if we're talking about expanding the electorate, who are the most effective kinds of people we should be going to that maybe aren't talking about politics every day? How can we go about doing that? But the measurability aspect is definitely more complicated than in Facebook, for example. So how can you build the right structure to do that? And there are sort of, sort of like tips and tricks that we're bringing in to really refine that each time we test it. But I think that's probably the most salient example I have right now is it relates to everyone's interested in it. Everyone's trying to do something in it. What can we bring to the table to move that conversation forward for all of the groups that are involved that can give us better direction and better impact for anything that we do in the future?
1: Among people I've recently talked to is a guy who has a firm that's building a platform for TikTok influencers to be connected with progressive groups. I talked to a specific one of those influencers who has more than – two million followers on TikTok, and who also has relationships with groups like ACLU. One reason I asked you about digital is just such a broad, it's everything, it's a giant space. There does seem to be stuff happening in the relationship to campaigns and that platform in particular. Can you give me a, like a case study? Like, Is there a campaign that comes to mind that you've worked with that has done a good job with influencers or with TikTok? And how did you make that happen?
0: So just for some context, we work really on the paid media aspects of these programs versus the organic media aspects. So it makes for just to walk you through sort of how that would end up working as you find someone on TikTok, you're paying them to post on their own feed, but where does it go after that? And that's sort of where we come in in terms of taking that content and really making it sort of across as many platforms with paid distribution as possible. I think there's a lot of activity on the organic aspects of that. I think John Fetterman's campaign in some ways is the most savvy in terms of some of the things that they did last cycle on that front. The paid piece is a little bit harder, I think, for people to get their arms around because it crosses so many platforms. One woman that we worked with where she had content that she created for TikTok and she wasn't necessarily based in the state that we were promoting the content, by the way, but we felt like her message could still be carried authentically that we ended up having her create that content. She posted it on her platform within, but TikTok doesn't allow pay advertising for politics, right? And we knew that going in. So we said, how can we take this content and put it on Facebook and Instagram And maybe other platforms like Snapchat or YouTube Reels, et cetera. And so in the course of just that shift of strategy of getting both the organic and paid piece of it, but then also taking that content and knowing that it won't necessarily work as a strict copy paste, right? For paid distribution, there's a bunch of other things you need to do to it to make it really compelling. Those are sort of two aspects just from a process perspective that we apply. I think the second piece is looking at it again holistically between the organic side and the paid that really gives you a better understanding of what is the, the reach of any given influencers piece of content. Again, when we're in our own echo chambers and we can reach our followers, I think TikTok does a great job of adding virality to that to really get it outside of your own echo chamber. Other platforms may be less so, but it's very unpredictable, right? So for us, being able to do it in a more controlled environment through paid distribution gives us much better visibility into like, okay, this content does okay on organic it can do really well in a paid distribution setting where we're actually reaching the people we want to reach because we can control for that up front right has allowed us to i think give a broader view and a broader lens to what a program like that should look like not just the organic piece or not just the paid piece but really bringing those two things together
1: so you seem to be referring to a particular candidate female candidate um, No,
0: this was a influencer this was for our voter turnout program
1: okay I thought you were giving me an example around a particular client of yours who employed your services to use things like TikTok. But just to understand, like, is your client base mostly state legislative candidates and and electives?
0: For the state legislative side, for the voter turnout side, which is the example I'm giving was just we had an influencer that that created content for her platforms and then also for our program at large. So it was broadcast to voters in the state. I think as it relates to the candidate side, that's an area where we haven't really done, we haven't employed this practice because we were piloting it in the turnout portion that I think for this cycle will be an interesting one.
1: What does an engagement with a state legislative campaign look like so far with, with tech for campaigns?
0: Yeah. So we'll work with them on, you know, ads is a great example. We'll also do email or websites or SMS. On the ad side, it's really getting the candidate, you know, honestly comfortable with, the mechanics of how it's going to work because it's very rapid. It's very iterative. Sometimes it will be creating content and they will then be the influence, right? So they'll do direct to camera type work, which we have found to be effective. We found it effective in 2020. We found it again effective this year. I think the mix to throw into that is finding voters to do the same kind of thing, but in a TikTok-like format, And then doing the distribution through the campaign. I think that's sort of like the next step or the next evolution. And so since we've tested that on the turnout side, now we have sort of a a path to doing that with candidates. But that service will look like anywhere from coming up with ideas of what we want the ads themselves to look like, editing it for them, coming up with what message we think is going to be most impactful because we're testing it across multiple campaigns, and then actually doing that for them in terms of running it on those platforms, getting a sense of how much dollars to put behind it, what's working and what's not working, et cetera.
1: I was looking at some of the stuff on your website around this, and one of the things that was cited was like 600 different campaigns that you had worked with and then 17,000 different volunteers, which is an enormous number of people to have a relationship with. But I tried to do that division, and it seemed like a lot of people per campaign to deploy or manage or connect. So I'm still trying to understand... So you you are approached by someone running for state Senate in Kentucky or something, and they say, help me out, Tech for Campaigns, and you're helping them with their paid digital. What does that relationship look like? Do they now have a set of volunteers that they can talk to? Is that all interfaced through you? Help me understand what it would feel like from the campaign side and from your side.
0: Sure. So I think when you chatted with Jessica in 2018, we had like a base model that since has evolved a bit. But the way that it it tends to work is we work with the caucus um, to start and then they'll help guide us as to how we go about thinking about candidates or states broadly, I think from there, the candidate can choose where they need the most help. So sort of across those four services that I talked about, right? And from there, they get staffed with a volunteer team. So the, the base of people that's available is the 17,000, but it's roughly anywhere from you know two to four people on average get staffed to any given project. So a project is website or email or ads. Some go for you know as short as three to four weeks, like getting your website set up. Others go for the full campaign, like running your ads. And then we have a uh, TFC employee who's a state director who's interfacing with all of these different projects and all of these different volunteer teams in terms of interfacing with both the candidate as well as the caucus, sort of on a regular basis to really make sure things are staying on track. And that's all provided low to no cost. So the campaign can ask for help or sometimes we go reach out to them and get connected to them through the caucus, but it becomes a pretty collaborative conversation from there.
1: What's your experience with campaigns at that level in terms of what they have for tools to do the kind of work that you want to do? There are media buying apps out there. There's blast email platforms, quite a variety of them. There's political campaign software aimed at different levels. There are website template things, and then there's a, a lots of commercial tools in all of those areas. Is there a standard stack that you're running into? Are there things you recommend? What do you think about what's available?
0: Yeah. So I think there's two parts to that. I think, one, we definitely have a set of things in going that we would recommend just given sort of the different pieces of ease, cost, impact, right? But it's really at the candidate's discretion what they ultimately What
1: are those recommendations that you have?
0: So, um, for example, on the website, we recommend WordPress for email, MailChimp ads. We tend to recommend starting with Facebook, Instagram, just because of the amount of users that are on the base for the audience they're targeting, right? We have iterations of those and sometimes they'll sort of ebb and flow, but that's like one core stack that we, we look at. And part of the reason we do that is because we now have data from over 600 campaigns over the last six years of what works and what doesn't work, right? And so one of the things we do provide sort of in-cycle is our dashboards to understand how are things working across campaigns so that the teams, the volunteer teams can understand, okay, this subject line is really effective in this email. Let's try it for this campaign or, oh, this format of an ad was actually very effective. Let's try it for candidate B over here. And so there's a lot of that cross-pollination that's happening that there just isn't a tool that's available to do that we build in terms of our own infrastructure. And we provide partly just because the way that we are set up is pretty unique. And so that's sort of like the other piece in terms of you have the recommended stack, but then you also have this data warehouse and data infrastructure that goes behind it to be able to see it across The 120 plus campaigns, for example, that we worked with last cycle so that the teams internally can really understand what's working and what's not and try new things if needed um, to really get the best out of out of any given campaign.
1: So your campaigns aren't using tools that are built for the political space.
0: I mean, we do use NGP van, for example, as CRM. I think there's a handful of other tools that are really around like voter specific pieces. But in terms of the actual builds for some of these tools, we're using what's available and out there that is pretty cost effective as the brilliant really the starting point.
1: One of the things that I noted on your website is something called Polaris, a call time tool. Is that out there? Was a lot of people using that?
0: Yeah. So as of 2021, post the FEC updates, uh, that tool, we have sort of sunset and we have a partner that had taken it on. I think that's a good example of trying to understand where there's white space, where people need a new tool, trying to build something, doing it internally, using commercial talent that, that came from sort of the private sector, seeing it. And if it doesn't work, being able to decide what to do with it or pivot
1: what does that mean? A partner that took it on?
0: So we have a, another partner in the ecosystem that ended up taking Polaris from us at the end of 2021. And so they sort of run it. So that's sort of where that stands.
1: The reason I was asking about that Polaris thing is because someone had reached out to me the other day and said, is there call time tools out there? Cause we know this person who's built this script for doing it. And is there a market for it? And there'd been something called call time AI, which was a separate startup and then and they got acquired by PDI. And, and there's a whole bunch of other people who had tackled that one component of fundraising, which is something I'd built back in 97 and which you know has gone through a lot of iterations in the NGP van world. And I had talked to a recent fundraiser out of Nevada who was doing something similar. It just seems like we often have these problems that are solved over and over and over and maybe not completely solved
0: yeah but i think your broader comment is very fair in that like tabella is another good example actually where we built that fairly early on in tfc's um, i think journey and you know priorities has ad hoc now that that was part of the reasons why we were like why invest more into something that
1: what's ad hoc i i don't know what that is
0: so um that's a tool where you're doing sort of the same thing that tabella is where you're tracking ad spend and ad performance um
1: And there's some media firms that have things like that and they're, Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think to your point, like, it's like, what's the premise for why we do or don't work together or coordinate because you're just ending up reinventing the wheel. Polaris is a good example where for us, in terms of the tool that we were building, it included donation history, which you're not allowed to pull anymore, right? So there wasn't really a clear reason to keep investing in.
1: FEC donation history. Yeah. I mean, I tried in 2005 to get approval to do that. With the FEC and it was we were told. I mean, so it's been forever that you weren't allowed to. Campaigns still do it. Sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sure.
0: And I uh, think there's a little bit of like how much where that line sort of and is, what right? kind
1: of exposure you want. And exactly. and then there's people who are vendors to data like that, the you know, that are out there, you're probably aware
0: of. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I think the specific piece on the FEC is Data that's downloaded for other systems is when it sort of became like official in 2021. I think sort of after that period, we were like, okay. I think the usage of it, to your point, is has always has been a little bit clearer, but I think that sort of gave us clarity as to why, for our purposes, it became a little bit less interesting. I think Tabel is another good example of like other people in the ecosystem, and again, I think we were much younger in our journey that we just weren't as good at coordinating. I think we've gotten a lot better at that, and still have a long ways to go, but. You know, I think that's where broader organizations like America Votes, et cetera, do great jobs of helping coordinate so that we're not running into each other all the time and can just use our dollars more effectively. Um, and I think that's sort of where for us doing things at the state level still seems to be a clear area where we can carve out a niche and can aggregate data on the digital side in ways that you're able to see everything that's happening sort of at a macro level, both in cycle and after the cycle. So we ran a test across campaigns around messaging. We wouldn't have been able to do that without our infrastructure and something that we then did essentially in lieu of polling for these candidates that it just, it, it doesn't make sense for them to do that, right? So then people say, hey, we came back with this result. We should really pivot our messaging to not focus on this, but on this instead. And sometimes those results surprised us, right? Like We thought abortion would be the topic to focus on. And actually it came back that like politics and education, people cared about more, but she, then you can hindsight to be like, yeah, state candidates, they're the ones that, it makes sense that this would be something.
1: With all this data that you're accumulating from these tests and so on, is that something that you share with the general ecosystem or is that something that you retain in your world?
0: That's now the next phase of TFC, I think. Now that we have like a steady base of it, it's really trying to figure out how to convert all of those into publicly shareable. Like, we share them with our candidates, and that, like, any given campaign that starts, like, they're starting with a leg up because we already have it internally. But I think a big focus for this year is how can we make that more generally available and more a starting point? We're not saying you should copy and paste this and assume that this is going to work, but here's all the stuff we've learned. Here's where you should start. You're going to have to test thereafter to really make sure that this works for you or evolve it past this. That's really the premise of what I think our strategic work for this year will look like.
1: Where does the political expertise in advising these candidates come from in your organization?
0: Yeah, twofold. So people like Jessica, who's been here since she started, right? Like she founded it. She's built amazing relationships. We as an organization have really worked to be better partners to other organizations in this space. And then I think the third is we have a political advisory board, right? We have people and candidates that we've worked with that are part of TFC's organization as part of this board where they're giving us insights into the state of the state. That are giving us insight as to the state of digital within the state that are giving us a point of view of like, what are the issues? Are there things that are coming up that we should be aware of? Um, and I think just by benefit of having been around now um, and I've worked with so many campaigns, they have a sense of like who we are and what we do that they know that they, they can pick up the phone and call us and give us some either guidance or ask ask questions on things that they're looking to get answers to.
1: Is there a business model around this? Is I mean, do you raise money? Do you charge any of your clients for the services? How do you make the ends meet?
0: It is through donors. So for anyone who's listening that is a donor or knows donors, please send them my way. We are fully funded by either institutional partners or high net worth individuals that care about this stuff.
1: What sort of donors latch onto this?
0: Yeah. So there's different kinds, right? So there's the kind of donor who understands about long-term infrastructure building where the fact that you're trying to prevent Trump from getting into office, like those tend to be two different people. You have donors that really understand that building something digital doesn't mean you flip on a switch and digital happens overnight, but actually there's engineering talent you need to hire, that there's like data that you need to really format and ingest and crunch numbers on. Sometimes there's a tool that you need to buy as part of that. There's some donors that get that and then other donors who don't. Right. Other donors are looking to have exposure or interaction with candidates, and that's not really what we do. Right. And so that's sort of like one broad bucket. And I think the second is donors who really understand and appreciate data and results. We're a very results oriented organization. We're not only showing you how much you get for what you give, but really what that means in terms of what impact you made in terms of the outcomes, right? So we talk about it as it relates to state flips or how many voters we turned out that didn't have cell phones in the voter file, et cetera, because that's where we know um, the margins can really help make a difference.
1: Who do you see as kind of competition for you or maybe people just doing the same thing that you could think of yourself as aligned with? I've run into quite a few Groups that provide digital advisors to campaigns or try to connect technologists or creatives or whatever with the progressive world, what do you see out there?
0: So to my knowledge, I don't think there's anyone that does low to no cost services for digital for state candidates. There are some that will do it full time, let's say, paid for federal candidates, or they'll do some other subset of those things. But if you put all of those interconnecting circles together, we're one of the only ones. I think there's adjacent partners that have sort of been mentioned as part of what we do, but they're either people that'll fund work like ours, right? So like States Project is a good example where they fund the kind of work that we do. And I think that's sort of where there's some work that we want to be doing in terms of just better articulating what we provide in in the course of serving our mission. And that'll be sort of like another area that I think we we really work on this year as well.
1: You've alluded to this at various points along this interview, but... Now you get the chance to put your own stamp on this organization as the CEO. What are you trying to turn it into? What are you gunning for specifically over the next couple cycles?
0: Yeah, I think probably the first one is we've grown and evolved and figured out what works and what doesn't over the last several years. And I think now we know what that is. I think we need to do a better job of storytelling that both to ourselves and to our partners and our donors and our volunteers. And that's a huge part of, I think, what, goes into, you can call brand with a capital B. I think that goes into things like taking all of our data and making it publicly available. Um, I think that goes to growing our talent within our organization and growing the organization broadly. That's probably the only thing. There's obviously a lot of components that go into that when I talk about you know what kind of impact I can make. But probably that last bucket is one that I feel personally really passionate about. I've been such a beneficiary of, being mentored and trained by amazing leaders that I want an opportunity to do the same for my team and, and broaden the net of what talent we bring into the organization as part of that. And so I have maybe a soft spot, spot for that in particular. You know, I think if we look past the next two years and where that leaves us, I want TFC to have been part of the conversation and be considered a good partner as part of that conversation in turning out those voters and flipping those state chambers where we need them.
1: Every type of organization in this space that we're talking about has some difficulty with longevity. If you're for-profit, you gotta keep satisfying your customers and getting them to pay for you. If you're a nonprofit, you gotta keep the donors happy and sometimes they find something else more exciting. And there are lots of things kind of betwixt and between. And so some of the, the nonprofits are working to sort of create a revenue stream. But what do you think are the advantages of, of the kind of model that you guys have chosen? And, and have you thought about changing that?
0: To my knowledge, we've definitely explored ways of changing that before my time. <laughs> I think it's a healthy exercise to do. I think the benefits of that is it requires us to be really prioritized in our work which I think a lot of organizations that are overfunded or just don't necessarily have to be that focused is good for us. I think there's no shortage of problems to solve in politics.
1: I didn't understand that paragraph. Organizations that are overfunded, what do you mean?
0: In the for-profit space, for example, right? Or um, organizations that have um, purely in There's something
1: good about the discipline of having... Having money be a little bit tight. Do you mean yes. that? Yeah,
0: yes, yes. yeah. And I think there's not good things about it too. To be clear, but I think the scrappy mentality of being really focused about what are the three things we're doing.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, is with
0: really good discipline um, because otherwise you sort of like walk yourselves and doing all these other things that maybe aren't really core to your mission or aren't really core to your strategy. I don't think it creates good team morale. I don't think it's great for donors because they feel like they're not really clear what they're giving you money for, right? And so I think that focus and that prioritization exercise is hugely beneficial. The other piece of it too is, especially if you found it resonating in the market, so to speak, right? Then I think it also gives you a reason to double down on that area. If you haven't, then yeah, you still need to sort of like go about the journey of figuring out what is or isn't going to really make an impact or be long lasting. But for us, I think fortunately, I think we've reached that phase where that's sort of why we're looking at like, how can we double down on everything that we've done and make it just better, more available and to your point, longer lasting.
1: Well, it's absolutely interesting to talk to you about what you're up to. I do think that that with your expertise in marketing, and your interest in telling your, the story of your firm, it's, it makes some sense because when I asked a few people about tech for campaigns that are in the space, they were not clear about what exactly was going on over there. And I think some of that is because you've picked the state legislative level to focus on. And so it's a little less seen, and maybe that's a really smart choice because there aren't so many practitioners in that space and the dollars are scarce for paying them even if more people were going after it. But I look forward to hearing what you guys do around that. So appreciate talking to you. Is there something I should have asked you that I didn't?
0: Um, no, I don't think so. I think to your point, like state legislative, now I think people are much more Attuned to it, especially if you're not like politics light, but you're like politics average, right? They understand. I think the SCOTUS decision on Dobbs last year really changed and really pivoted that.
1: You mean people are much more focused on state legislatures? Yeah,
0: aware. I don't know if they're focused, but they're aware, right? But I will say that even within the politics average consumer, you ask like about what's happening in Wisconsin right now. If you're not in the state of Wisconsin, you're not really that plugged in, and they don't to really a state
1: supreme court. Election or something like that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. But, you know, even if it's in the New York Times as a headline article, it's still not penetrating the narrative quite yet. And I, I think it makes for interesting conversations with donors that are just not aware of it, even if they've been political donors for a really long time. So I think to your point, yes, we've carved out a niche. I think part of that has some education and clarification that we as an organization need to do, but also within the donor landscape broadly. But we see the tides shifting. And so hopefully that means that. There will be more donors that are interested, more organizations that are also looking to help get really involved and just, you know, again, be a rising tide that lifts all boats.
1: So if you were standing in front of a potential donor right now and they're asking the question, so what exactly do you do? What, Why should I give you my money? What's your quick, strong Uh, answer to that?
0: This is a great question because it's the one that we've been batting around internally to figure out over the last little S- while. Such here. an
1: annoying question, but yes, no, it's pretty exactly. pivotal to running an enterprise like this.
0: It's, it's a litmus test. I think it's a really important litmus test. So I'm going to try. I will caveat that it's still not perfected, but taking all the best practices from digital marketing and working with state legislative candidates and voter turnout programs.
1: So they can win more.
0: So they can win more. Yeah, great. An <laughs> outcome at the end of that. Yeah, exactly. To win more. That's where we've gotten to. It's still not perfected, but hopefully over the next couple of months you'll see how all of that. Goes. Well, I,
1: end of the day, the most important way to tell your story is to do good stuff that people appreciate and makes a difference, and that they learn from on the ground.
0: Agree, agree, agree.
1: Gina, lovely to talk to you. Uh, anything else you want to say?
0: Just want to say thank you so much for taking the time, and also uh, really hope for a safe, speedy recovery, you'll be in our thoughts. Okay, thank you.
1: That was Gina Pack. She's at techforcampaigns.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.